Well, good morning, church. Great to see you on this uh, uh, Daylight Saving Sunday, all of our favorite Sunday. I want to congratulate you on having an extra hour to sleep and congratulate me on having an extra hour to preach. And that'll be a wonderful thing. I greet all our campuses joining us here today, and I want to reinforce something that we've announced at the uh, the campuses. Uh, This Saturday we have a symposium with the president of Cedarville University, which is uh, 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 cool that we get to have him here. And uh, I was blessed to go to a Christian college, and it's not for everybody, and it may not be for you or your child, but it's something to think about. And we're going to get into some reasons why, and I think it'll be a very uh, enlightening time. And so I just want to reinforce that and invite you to come to the Crown Point campus this Saturday uh, at 7 o'clock, and uh, it's going to be a good time. You know, over the years, I've noticed that my sermon illustrations often outlive my sermons. And what I mean by that is that People oftentimes remember the illustration. They may not remember what the sermon was about. They may not remember the text, but they remember the illustration. I still, it's been probably 10 years, I still will have people say, I remember when you dressed like a bum on the bro- with a car broken down on Broadway. Okay, that was an illustration of uh, the Good Samaritan, but you, you remember the, the bum that I was on Broadway. I remember when you dressed like Martin Luther for that church history message. Good. That was, that was fun. Uh, I, I remember the repelling ropes from the ceiling here in our series in Romans. But do you remember union with Christ? That was the point. I remember the massive ship chain. But do you remember the golden chain of salvation and how solid our salvation is. But this is what illustrations do. They have a way of visually implanting a truth in our hearts, and and it sticks with us. And Scripture has many, many illustrations in it. Uh, Jesus illustrated extensively. Read the Sermon on the Mount. The Apostle Paul illustrates a lot, although in Romans, not as much as he does in other letters. But today we have before us Paul's best-known illustration from the book of Romans. And it's his biggest one. It's probably the one that uh, will linger on in your mind, I hope. And, uh, you know, in my sermon illustrations, if you've noticed, I tend to illustrate with sports or stories about my family. The Apostle Paul lived in in an agricultural society, and he often illustrated in that manner. And today's illustration is an agrarian illustration, which would have connected with the people of his day. We are an Indiana-based church, and so this should work pretty well here in the, in the Midwest with an agricultural illustration. And our text today is Romans 11, verse 11 and following. And what we saw last week in verses 1 through 10 is that God still has a heart for, for the descendants of Abraham. God still has a heart for the Jews. How do we know that? Because Paul says God always has a remnant. He had it in Elijah's day. He has it even after Jesus. Even though the Jews have largely rejected Jesus as Messiah, there is still a remnant, Paul himself being one of them. So I begin in verse 11 now. Here's what the text says. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. 
Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now I'm well aware as I begin to take this text apart for you today that there are some of you, indeed maybe many of you, who are sitting there right now and you're thinking to yourself, why should I care about God's plan for the Jews? I am not a Jew. This doesn't seem to relate to me. I've made my way to church today, and, and this, doesn't, this isn't a topic that's particularly interesting to me. And I'm here to tell you today, it should be. If you're a Christian, it should be. Why? Because this is the most important thing that has ever happened. And God is explaining how he has accomplished our salvation. Now I'm aware, I think it's this weekend or the next weekend, There's a movie coming out that all the gearheads are excited about. It's a movie that tells the story about how Ford designed a car that raced faster than Ferrari. And the gearheads are excited about this. And they're going to turn out by the thousands because they are so interested in how one car company made a faster car than another car company. Here's my question. On the scale of eternal importance, where does that land? And the answer is somewhere around nothing or less than nothing, right? (laughs) Nothing at all. And yet, oh, they're going to be so excited to see how Ford did it. And here today, we're talking about the most important thing that has ever happened. We're talking about what on the eternal scale is 100. We're talking about salvation and how God accomplished Jew salvation and Gentile salvation. Is there anyone here interested? Back to verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might uh, fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So what Paul is doing here is he's explaining how Jews and Gentiles fit into God's plan for saving all people. And he asks, is is the Jews stumbling? Is, is, is God's design in order for them to stumble and ultimately fall? And he has now the response that's now familiar, by no means. We've seen this before in Romans. It's the strongest negative in the Greek language. It's basically saying, no, 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 no way, Jose. We are, not, we are not at all talking about God wanting Israel to fall. Then why are the Jews mostly not believing in Jesus? And even to this day, why do ethnic Jews largely reject Jesus as Messiah? And Paul gives two reasons. The first is that by God's plan, their unbelief is actually bringing Gentiles into salvation. How's that? 
Well, Tim Keller makes a very interesting point in his uh, commentary on Romans where he, he, he says that if the Jews had wholesale accepted Jesus, let's just say that that had happened. Jesus is resurrected. He ascends to heaven. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. The apostles begin preaching the gospel in the synagogues. And every ethnic Jew that heard it trusted and believed in Jesus. What would be the net result of that? The Gentiles would have looked at that and thought, hey, that's kind of a Jewish thing. You know, happy for you, but keep it in the synagogues. Don't bother us in our pagan lifestyle. And that would have been largely the the parochial nature of the gospel if the Jews had wholesale accepted it. But you read the book of Acts, and what happens over and over again? The apostles go into a town. They go to the synagogue first. They proclaim Jesus as the fulfillment of the Messiah. Read Acts 13 in Pisidian Antioch as an example of this. And, And what happens? They get to the end where they say, you know, Jesus is the Messiah. Do the Jews go, yes, no. They get... They're infuriated by this. And they basically throw them out of the synagogue. And where do they land when they go out of the synagogue? In the marketplace. And who's in the marketplace? The Gentiles are in the marketplace. And they begin to preach that same gospel they were telling in the synagogues, often in a slightly different way. And the Gentiles would respond. And a church was started. And Paul would then go on to another place and write a letter back to that Gentile church. Your Bible, your New Testament, in terms of the number of books, is largely letters written to predominantly Gentile churches. Church at Ephesus, church at Thessalonica, church at Philippi, etc. That's just how it happened. And we should be glad that's how it happened. Because it has meant the Gentiles hearing, trusting and believing in Christ. And our church to this day stands in that historic tradition. It contributed to Gentile belief. And the second thing that Paul says here in verse 11, he repeats this in verses 13 and 14, that the Gentile salvation is in part to make the Jews jealous. To make the Jews jealous. To make them envious. And this is not in a sinful way. There is a kind of sinful jealousy. In fact, most jealousy, let's be honest, is sinful, selfish-oriented jealousy where I want what you got or I don't want you to have what I wish I could have. Envy, jealousy, covetousness. This is not sinful jealousy. This is a good godly jealousy. It's the kind of jealousy you feel maybe uh, if you're married and you go out to, to dinner with another couple and they seem happy and caring and loving and you drive home and you think to yourself, you know, I'm kind of envious of their marriage. Let's kind of get our act together here and strive to be like them. That's a good jealousy. That's a good envy. And that's the kind he's talking about here. What Paul is, is saying is that my ministry to the, to the Gentiles is in part... In his heart, he's hoping that as the Jews see the Gentiles experiencing forgiveness of sin, experiencing new life in Christ, experiencing an unusual sort of love and unity amongst the church, that that as they basically are experiencing the promises that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament, now the Gentiles having the fullness of it, that the Jews would look at the Gentiles and go, we kind of wish we had what they got. Or to say, if, a, if, 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 you're a, if you're a practicing Jew here even today, and you come into our church, and you 
sense in this place a genuine love for God and a genuine love for one another, that there might be a kind of thing in your heart where you go, you know, I, I sort of wish, I wish we had this going on in our synagogue. These people seem to be genuinely loving the Lord. And that envy to draw them to faith. Now, we can stop right there and talk about envy evangelism. Because this is basically the point of the letter of 1 Peter. Peter writes, and he describes relationships that human beings have. Here, here are the, the, here's the list. Citizen to government, employee to employer, wife to husband, church member to church member. And he urges that Christians make those relationships so healthy and so exemplary as best we can as fallen Christians still being sanctified, yes, but to strive to make our lives so reflect the gospel, he says in chapter 2, verse 12, that when they, this is the unbelieving Gentiles, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Titus 2, he says, make the gospel attractive. Live your life in such a way that even the pagans look at that and go, you know, I got to say, as much as I sort of don't like some of the things that they believe, their lives are, man, I kind of, I, I wish I had that. Envy evangelism. How's that going? Church, how's that going, Pastor Steve? Compelling questions. Make them envious. Verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, these are spiritual riches, the riches of the gospel, how much more will their full inclusion mean? How much more will the Jews' full inclusion mean? And what Paul is talking about here, he's hinting at something that later in the chapter he's going to explain uh, more clearly, he's hinting prophetically that someday, someday the Jews are going to wholesale, large scale, they are going to put their faith and trust in Jesus. There is coming a day when there will be a great revival amongst the Jews believing in Jesus. Now, if you skip ahead and look at verse 25, it says that the Jews currently are in a time of what he calls here partial hardening until the era of Gentile evangelism is complete. And again, we're going to look at that. But one way to, one way to understand the story of, of Judaism, and indeed chapter 11, is the three R's with respect to the Jews. Verses 1 through 10 is remnant. Verses 11 through 25 is rejection of Jesus temporarily. And verses 25 through 32 is restoration. And the point here is, he begins the chapter, God has not rejected his people. No. There is a future for them, along with all the Gentile believers, in one final holy people of God. So Jews and Gentiles together, isn't this a little bit like oil and water, Democrats and Republicans Packer fans and genuine Christians. <laughs> I'm just making sure you're all with me today. 
So how do these two people groups who have for centuries been so divergent, for centuries there is a legacy around the earth of anti-Semitism, how are these two groups ever going to come together? And here now we have this famous illustration. I begin in verse 16. It's a little longer section. Hang with me. Here's what Paul writes. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has that power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted because of their own, back into their own olive tree? So now we're all confused. <laughs> we're probably more confused than they would have been in the Middle East at that time, and even maybe to this day, because you mention an olive tree in, in, uh, in the Middle East, everybody knows what you're talking about, because it is, it is such a common tree, it's such a common wood. If you go on a, on a trip to Israel, every street vendor that you see is selling little olive sculptures of every single character in the Bible, and every possible ornament in the temple, and any possible little tchotchke kind of thing, it's all made out of olive wood. Olive wood is everywhere. Olive trees are, are everywhere. One commentator says the olive tree was the most widely cultivated fruit tree in the Mediterranean. This would be like writing to Indiana Christians and saying, you know, this is like a corn plant. And here in Indiana, we're like, ah, we got you there. We, we know corn. And they knew olive trees. And so let's take this apart. I want to explain this, and I think it's going to be a blessing to everybody. Verse 16, if the root is holy, so are the branches. That's a foundational truth to understanding what he's saying here. Who are the roots, and who is the olive tree, and who are the branches? Okay? This tree, overall, is the people of God, the true Israel, the remnant, the redeemed of God. Not every ethnic Jew, but the redeemed people of God. So who are the roots then? The roots of this tree 
are the patriarchs and the promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you read the Old Testament, God self-reveals over and over again. He did to Moses in the burning bush. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is repeated over and over again. Who are these guys? Sinners who needed to be justified by faith. Go back to Romans 4. It is the promises that God made to the patriarchs that made them the roots of the tree. They represent the beginning. So if the roots are holy, so are the branches. The idea here is if the roots are healthy, you got healthy roots, you probably have a healthy tree. You've got healthy roots, those branches out in the extension, they're green, they're, they're looking good. Totally holy, totally healthy. So any branch connected, here's the point, any, here's the visual now, any branch that's connected to the holy roots is a healthy branch. Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Okay, so now we're introduced to a, if you will, a second tree. And this second tree is not the carefully cultivated olive tree. This is the, this is the tree out back in the back 40. This is the little sapling that uh, is just sort of growing wild back there. This is the difference between the tree that you buy at the garden center and the tree that you might, you know, shovel out of back behind your house. The one is straight, it's beautiful, it's the way it's supposed, the other one is just blah, doing whatever. It's just a wild olive tree. So the cultivated tree is the people of God tree. The wild olive tree represents Gentile believers of which most of us are here today. So if you're trying to, where am I in the story? We're the wild olive branch here in the story. So he brings up this whole idea of grafting. And I'm going to assume most of us have never grafted anything in our life, right? So I need to explain this, and I am not an expert in grafting. I've learned a lot this week studying this. But it was a very common thing in the the early church. And so if you had a tree, if you had a tree that was was uh, dying, what you would often do is they would go to a healthy tree, they would break, you know, cut off a branch, and then they would cut a wedge into the dying tree, and they would stick the healthy branch into the dying tree. And the thought was that the sap of the healthy branch would bring life to the dying tree. They called it grafting, okay? Now, somebody's going to come up to me after the service, some tree expert's going to tell me all about how we do still do grafting to this day, and I am so glad to hear it, but it's irrelevant to the story, okay? <laughs> because if you're, if you're hanging with me here, you'll say, wait a second, they, they would take a healthy branch and put it into a sick tree. That's not what Paul's describing here. Indeed, it's not. This is a healthy tree. This is roots in the promises and the patriarchs of, of, uh, of Israel. We're the kind of weird Gentile believers. We're sort of that weird branch in the back 40 that is being grafted in. One commentator makes a very interesting point on why Paul essentially reverses 
what the normal grafting process was. As little as a wild olive shoot would not have any right to be grafted into a cultivated tree, so little right do Gentiles have to be given a place in the people of God. But such is precisely the effects of God's grace. And here now you see how this picture becomes really effective if you understand who we are and who the tree is. Who we are and who the roots of this tree are. How do I, the wild olive branch, find myself connected to the sap of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. And this is now Paul's point. Gentiles. He's not writing this to to the Jews. He's writing this to Gentile believers in the church. He's saying, listen, do you realize who you are? And do you realize that who you are means that you have no right to be grafted into the holy tree of God, the tree of life, to be connected to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Do you realize the grace of God to take you out of the wilderness and to put you into this tree? I like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. Remember, you are not feeding the root. The root is feeding you. And that's Paul's point here. Gentiles, know your place. Remember who you are. Remember what you deserved. Remember that you were the one on the outside. You were the ostracized spiritually. You were the marginalized spiritually. And yet, the grace of God takes that branch. And and essentially, if you're a Christian here today, we're all branches that God, by his grace, has taken out of the wilderness and out of judgment and by his grace has grafted us into the very tree that he began with Abraham in Ur and that now is the tree of the people of God. It is indeed the tree of life. Don't be arrogant. Know your place. What would arrogance mean if you were a Gentile believer in the tree? It would mean that we are falling into the same temptation that caused the Jews' branches to be broken off in the first place. They were the entitled ones. They were, we are DNA of Abraham. We deserve to be under the grace of God and in the salvation. And God comes along and says, no, you are not saved because you are DNA. You are saved by faith in Christ. And if that's not true for you, I don't care if you're of the tribe of Benjamin. Bam, off you go. And Paul says, Gentile believers, don't fall into the trap that the Jews did. Know your place. Verse 19, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, branches, neither will he spare you. Now, I know full well some of you right now are having a theological crisis as you hear this. And you say, wait a second. I thought once saved, always saved. 
I thought once you're a branch in the tree, then kick back, baby, because you're going to heaven. And yet here he says, fear lest your branch be broken off again. Now, how many people would love to hear what that means? Okay, you're going to have to come back another Sunday, all right? Because I'm not going to get into that this time, but we are going to get into that. What is Paul saying here? And now I have my own illustration. You've been wondering, why is this sitting over here? It's the, you know, it's the Charlie Brown tree. It's lame. It's got no lights in it. Why are they making this prominent? Well, it's because it's an illustration for me. Okay, so let me just use Paul's illustration. This is what he's saying. The tree is the true people of God. The roots of this tree are the promises God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every branch born off of this tree is the ethnic, is ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here's what Paul is saying. He is saying, God looks at this tree and he perceives in the hearts of some of these that they're not actually trusting in Jesus, they're trusting in who they are. And what God does for them is he removes them from the tree. He breaks off those branches and he casts them aside. That sounds harsh, but that's what it says. He says, now here's the wonder of what God has done for the Gentiles, is that God goes to a very different tree, and this tree has no right to be in this tree. This other tree has no right to be in this tree. This other tree, it's not cultivated. This is wild. This is sinful. These are people that are not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet, by the grace of God, what does God do? God takes these branches and grafts them in, grafts them in, by the millions, grafts them in, and places branches that naturally have no right to be connected to this whole thing, but he grafts us in. And he says, you are now people of God, okay? Now, let's just say that these branches, after a little while, you know, they've been Christians for a little while. Maybe they grew up in the church. They're sort of getting comfortable in the church. They start looking around at the other branches, and they start saying, they start saying, hey, we're just as good as these other people. We sort of deserve to be here. Like, in fact, I'm, my branch is bigger than your branch. I'm sticking out further than you're sticking out. Arrogance, entitlement. What have these branches done if they start looking around at these natural branches and saying, you know what? We are just as good, if not better than you. They have forgotten the grace of God. That they don't deserve to be in this tree in the first place. They deserve to be burned in the fire in the back 40. Be humble. Verse 20. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. 
It's not like these natural branches are here because they're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No. These branches are here because they have faith in Jesus. Just like these branches are here because they have faith in Jesus. These happen to be ethnically Jews. And you can say, here's the Apostle Paul, you know, here's Peter, here's Andrew, here's the 12 apostles and the other believers, Luke, and whoever you want to throw in there. Lots of ethnic Jews who have trusted in Jesus, they're in the tree, okay? They are in the tree the same way that Gentile believers are in the tree. It all comes down to faith. Faith in Jesus Christ and trust in him. It's the only way any of us are saved. Not because of who you are and your ethnicity, not because of who you are in society, not because of you being better than other people. We are in the tree because of faith in Christ and him alone. And we can't say that too much or emphasize it too much. And so Paul's concern here is that we Gentiles somehow might become arrogant and entitled just like the Jews did. And this is human nature, right? When we have something that's given to us, after a while we begin to assume that I have this because I, I, you know, I deserve it. This reminds me of some years ago, I had some flight somewhere, and for some reason the airline double booked my seat. There were two of us standing there going, I got a ticket that says this seat, you got a ticket that says this seat, you know, what, what do we do? And uh, it's been a while, the details are fuzzy, but somehow I ended up in first class. (laughs) Let me just tell you, it was wonderful. (laughs) I went in and, you know, I sat down and there was a, you know, the day's paper sitting on on the chair for me. I sit down, the flight attendant comes up, may I get you something to drink? I'm like, oh, what are my options? And there's a little menu for the pre-flight drink. I select a tasty pre-flight drink. She scurries away to go get it. I open my paper, and yes, I begin to sort of look with disdain. (laughs) On the riffraff passing beside me. (laughs) As they make their way to the back of the plane. I am in the front of the plane. I am first class. These people are where they deserve to be. (laughs) I was tempted to forget that I didn't deserve to be there, that I hadn't paid anything to be there. By nature, I'm the same as the riffraff in the back. I'm only where I am by the grace of the airlines, I didn't deserve it. And friends, we need to realize this is the mark of the Christian who gets the gospel. The ongoing attitude and perspective about life and church and ministry, where we never forget that we are the people of God completely by the grace of God. And that grace started centuries before I was even born, when God met with Abraham. In fact, you can make the argument before that, of course, but historically, when God met with Abraham and said, through you all nations of the earth will be blessed, who was he talking about? Us, 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 us. Praise God, us. He was talking about us. 
He was talking about his knowing that someday there would be millions of people from every tribe, tongue, language, and people group who are not ethnically connected to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but by the grace of God are forever spiritually connected to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and are ongoingly nourished by the promises that God made to them. Why? Because I'm connected to the tree, by the grace of God grafting me in. And our temptation, especially if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, is towards a kind of snobbery that where we somehow think that maybe in the whole story, we're the special ones. That maybe we've discovered something that nobody else had ever discovered before. That we're experiencing something by the Spirit that nobody has ever experienced before. That we are uniquely the most wonderful Christians in all of history. We can think that we're the roots and we're nourishing the tree. And that is obnoxious and it is flat wrong. And so this text has two questions that challenge us. Here's the first. Are you in the tree or are you in the woods? Are you in the tree or are you in the woods? And with this, you don't need to, you know, get onto Ancestry.com and try to figure out your, your genetic DNA to figure out whether you are in the tree or in the woods. The question is, have you been grafted into the tree by faith in Jesus as your Savior? Are you all in with Christ? Are you alive with Him or not? We have trees around our house. Whenever we have one of these windstorms that come in, I always have to walk around and pick up all of these branches that have fallen down. Maybe you've done that at your home. And I oftentimes think of the spiritual analogy as I'm picking up these branches and, and throwing them out, that this is such a picture of how it is spiritually. Storms come in life, right? How do you, how do you know which branches in the tree are alive and which are dead? The dead ones fall off and they're thrown away. The storm reveals who is spiritually alive and who is spiritually dead. And in terms of this biblical illustration, I just want to ask the question, where are you? Where are you? Are you out in the woods spiritually? You're the wild olive tree, and man, you're living a wild life. Or have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you received a salvation offered by God through grace that you do not merit, you do not earn, you have no right to the blessings of, but God offers it if you will trust and believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God, by his grace, grafts you in. And you are nourished forever and ever and ever in his promises. I wonder if an illustration of a tree might be the thing that God uses to graft you in. Trust in Jesus today. Join the tree. The second question is really for those of us who are believers here today, and that is, are you entitled or are you humbled by your place in God's salvation? You know, entitled people, they, they uh, you know, they're part of churches and they come to church and they think they're first class. Entitled people serve when it makes them look good or it's convenient. 
Entitled people use the church for their own self-advancement, whereas grace-humbled Christians are thrilled to let God use them. Grace-humbled people are willing to take the place of least significance. Grace-humbled people continue to be astonished that God would save somebody like them. First class, third class, entitled or humble? Let's ask ourselves that question. I sent out a, a, a First Bethelonians email, and if you didn't know, uh, I don't know. I, I, it, there's no rhyme or reason to it, but I send these emails to the whole church family. If you're not getting them, please let us know and sign up. But I sent one out this week, and I, I shared in it that uh, we unfortunately are about to say goodbye to a really wonderful family in our church, Don and Patty Ike. And I have a picture of them here. They might be in the service somewhere, I don't know. But Don and Patty, they're moving to Texas to be near their kids and grandkids. Is that not lame? Let's just admit it. <laughs> to leave a wonderful church family that loves you and frankly needs you, to go be the, with the grandkids, that's clearly out of the will of God. But they're doing it anyway, and so we, we wish them uh, the very best. And uh, both Don and Patty have served in wonderful ways here. I just want to make, tell you a little bit about Don a second. I've spent a fair amount of time with Don. Don has an incredible servant's heart. And many people here, no doubt, have been blessed by Don's ministry. He's a, he's a, a he can fix anything. He's a handyman. He served in our, our deacon ministry, helped so many widows and others with needs. He's been uh, tremendous with that. Uh, and he's been to the, the, the senior pastor's house a time or two as well, I might add, and we're blessed by him. But one of the things I've always appreciated about Don is that whenever Don shares his own testimony, and this testimony, it's one of these, I mean, it's a remarkable testimony. He had, there was lots of addiction, there was a lot of sin, even into his adult years, but when you talk with Don about his own personal testimony and he begins to share about being a Christian, his eyes get red, tears fill his eyes, and he just shares in a way that I've always felt is that Don is still shocked that God would save somebody like him. And I've always appreciated that about Don. And you know, not everybody's a crier, but I think for anybody that finds himself grafted into God's tree of life, at the very least, there should be tears in our hearts. That we should have wonder and gratitude. And to think to ourselves, oh God, why would you save someone like me? Amen.